morning. I'm going to take us to uh, the Word this morning. So if you would like, uh, please turn in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 24. And we'll be looking at verses 29 through 31. Again, that's Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. And if you will, if we could please uh, stand, if you are able, out of reverence for the Word of God. The Gospel writer records, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to come together in this place to worship, Lord. We thank you for um, your mercy, your goodness, and your grace. We thank you for the exceeding abundance you have lavished that grace upon us, Lord. We are just in awe of you today, Lord. And may this hour be your hour. May this time be your time. May this place be the place in which your name is magnified, Lord. And may we each glorify you, each in our own way, Lord, as, as we can, according to our abilities, according to our strength, according to what you have given us, Lord, according to the measure of the direct grace which we have received. Lord, we just are in all of you to this day. We know you are our Lord, you are our sovereign, you are our Savior. We are thankful for Jesus Christ, who is our steadfast Lord, our Savior, our brother, our friend. He is the one who stands by us in all things, Lord. He is our high priest ever before the throne, making intercession on our behalf, Lord. We are just uh, thankful for who he is for us this morning, Lord. He is our lamb. He is the one who has been offered for us, Lord. He is also the one that is coming back, Lord. And he is coming back in power and glory. He will reign throughout all the ages to come into eternity that has no end. And, Lord, we know that you come back this time as judge, as the one who will judge the earth in power, the one who will be a conquering king, Lord, not a suffering servant this time, but the one who will rule all things, Lord, and shall put all powers, all authorities, all kingdoms, all nations under his feet, Lord, that um, in the end the Lord shall, rap, shall laugh, he shall have them in derision. Lord, we're just thankful for the cross, Lord, who has granted us victory this morning, Lord. The cross is that which has unified us to Jesus and thus has unified us to you. And we are just thankful for the reconciliation we have, the propitiation that's been offered on our behalf in the, in the blood of your son, Jesus, who was made sin for our, on our behalf, who knew no sin, and was made so that we might be made the righteousness of God of him. These things we ask in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Amen. We um, we return this morning to Matthew chapter number twenty-four. Uh, I hope that doesn't surprise most of you, um, as we have taken it as our task to trek through the book of Mark, Mark thirteen. Um, but the past week or so, um, and at different points, we have taken Matthew's account of that parallel passage in Mark chapter number thirteen. Um, it, it, it seems most wise to me uh, because this is the most extensive account of what we would refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Um, you may remember that our Lord um, has been 
in the midst of a growing hostility with the Jewish leaders and the nation of Israel as a whole. Um, and if you're visiting with us today, just to, to summarize where we're at or where we're and where we're going, um, we've taken Matthew chapter 21 through 24, particularly, and much of the book of Mark, to see that growing hostility culminate in a whole host of woes given in a sermon to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious elite in Matthew 23. And he ends it with a condemnation upon the nation of Israel um, with words such as these, that their house would be left to them desolate. Matthew 24 picks up with um, a conversation between the disciples and our Lord. It moves from public to private. Um, the Lord, our Lord enter, or exits the temple for the final time. Um, His glory leaves the temple and He proceeds to the Mount of Olives where He has this conversation and gives a discourse um, to, our, to, to the disciples. Um, it begins provoked by them, a question that they ask. It may be one question, some dissected into three questions, some two, and we'll deal with that possibly next week or the next sermon related to this. But they ask, when will these things be? What things? The things that he had just pronounced, I'm arguing. Uh, particularly the desolation of the temple and the end of Judaism as a, as a rabbinic or a, um, as an old covenant um, religion. And that's what he says. He says, uh, do you not see all these things? Verse 2, assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things shall be. And um, it has been my contention to offer you um, what I know has been kind of a mind-exhausting exercise in a different perspective than what most people have in our culture today. Um, and when I say culture, I even mean cultural Christianity. And even, not only cultural Christianity, but even mainstream faithful evangelicalism. That I take a minority position on this, that the vast majority of evangelicalism today takes a complete future perspective on this passage of Scripture. Um, listened to many faithful men, read many faithful men, and some will argue that the entirety of this portion of Scripture, Matthew 24, 25, is completely future um, to us and still um, will take, um, take form in a future event at the end of to the time-space continuum um, as a whole. That's not my position. Um, I've argued that this primarily took place from 66 to 70 A.D., in the destruction of the temple, ending formally um, Old Covenant Judaism. And that's what we're going to continue on with today. Verses 4 through uh, 14 particularly deal with that time between 33 A.D. and uh, 66 A.D. where you'll see signs that aren't really signs of the end. That's what he says. And the purpose of giving them those is so that in that intermittent period, they would know how to carry themselves in the midst of great persecution, false messiahs, false prophets, and an increase in lawlessness. And we looked historically, that's exactly what happened. And then verses 15 through verses 28 deal with the great tribulation, that period. I'm going to argue a three and a half year period from 66 A.D. to the culmination of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Um, in which a, a, a definitive sign would be given that when you see this sign, know that the end is near. What was that sign? We looked at it last week. The abomination of desolation. When that happens, run to the hills. And uh, we looked at all of the um, all of the peripheral things that would happen um, during um, that time. 
Then we approach verse 29 through 31. If there's ever a problem with this perspective, it's right here. You may have been with us or been with me up to this point, um, and I even got comments last week, what are you going to do next week? How are you going to deal uh, with this portion of Scripture? Because if there is any um, problem with this perspective, and let me just say there's problems or difficulties with every perspective. It doesn't matter which perspective you take. Um, I've, I've discussed with many of you different things concerning all of them. Um, each one have, has its difficulties. For this perspective, this is a difficulty that I pray that we will overcome this morning. And I don't have all the time um, to give you that I would desire, um, but I will give you kind of a, a surface level view um, of this portion of Scripture and what I believe and how I believe it ties together um, with the previous verses. And I believe it has to. Because I've taken the position that verse 40, 34 says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. That that's, that time reference there dictates that all the things previous um, happened or would happen prior or would happen. Uh, so you have to take verses 4 through 33 as an, as an entirety or in a totality or as a, as a whole. Um, so that's what I'm going to do this morning. And it's difficult. It's hard, right? This is a hard text. Uh, th- this whole passage is a hard text. But I want to say this morning that I don't think it's a hard or a difficult text to interpret in and of itself. I think it's difficult because we're difficult. (laughs) I think it's difficult particularly in the context of our culture in the last 200 years or so, but even within my generation, it's difficult because I'm difficult. Um, It's difficult because I bring so many things to the text with me. That's what I mean. Um, I remember years ago as a young man, um, growing, not, not growing up in church, but in my early 20s, pursuing a girl, the Lord providentially used her to plant me in a local New Testament church. And by God's grace, He did a work in me there that um, continues to this day. Gave me a desire to preach and teach. And I remember years ago answering the call to preach. That's what we called it in, in those type of circles. But desiring to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God faithfully, not really knowing how to do that. Um, thus, I went off to seminary um, because discipleship was, was hard to find. But I knew I'd stand up and preach, and I didn't really know how to preach. I didn't know what to do. I just followed the example of other men. And in God's providence, I, I trust that he, he blessed a lot of that. And a lot of it was failed attempts and failed um, exegesis and failed uh, proper interpretation of the text. And he's been gracious with me. I don't know if it was arrogance or just total immaturity, but I remember going off to seminary thinking um, I had it all figured out. And I wouldn't tell people that, of course, um, because that would have been arrogant and prideful. But I think in some way in the recesses of my mind, I did believe that. Um, And and again, it wasn't inherently to be arrogant or prideful to think that I had it all together. I just had such a confidence in my pastor and such a confidence in the church that God had had placed me in and rooted me in that I, I couldn't fathom in my mind how they could be wrong about anything. Thus, I thought when I went to seminary that, that um, everything that I had believed, I would, just, I would just become more confident in and I would find roots in the Scriptures and I would just continue to grow in this understanding of, of the Lord. But it was amazing as I began to study Scripture and be um, engaged on different accounts of, 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 uh, of things that I believed and be challenged in my own mind, um, those things began to change. I remember one of the first times was on the doctrine of salvation. Um, 
And a, a faithful brother came to me and challenged me on some things. So I did what every immature, um, arrogant young man would do. I went out and bought all the books that agreed with me. And I thought, I'm going to show this guy what's what. Um, but at the same time, going off to seminary and following in the pattern of my former pastor, just desired to be a faithful pastor and a faithful preacher of the Word. And at some point, had to come to grips with the fact that if this is what the Word of God taught, then this is what I should teach. And not only should I teach it, but I should love it. And within that two-year span, just had an entire paradigm shift. Um, it was hard during that time, though, to read the Word of God any differently than what I did before. Um, but once it changed, you begin to read the Word of God differently from beginning to end. When your doctrine of salvation or something that, 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 that paradigmatic, that, that, that essential, it changes in your thinking, it's hard to read the Word of God differently. And it was hard to make that transition because everything that I had been taught um, uh, must be severed to even think that this could be um, an appropriate idea without offending my conscience. The same thing has happened with this. You know, within that, 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 that church and within churches like that that I had been a part of, um, uh, they had taught a, a, a particular view of this portion of Scripture and of end times views altogether. Um, never had I encountered anything different. And I thought as I go, I'll just um, reaffirm and confirm uh, and, and just regain confidence in that, in that position. Um, and as I began to, to, to engage with the other positions, um, the Lord began to tax my thinking and exhaust my uh, spiritual condition on those things. And I thought, maybe, maybe there is another faithful in, interpretation. But what I'm getting at is, is that I'm getting at that, that bringing you this, we read that text this morning, it's almost impossible to think of it in a different way than you already think. And I'm asking you to do that. Um, I almost began this morning starting out with the words, uh, beginning the entire sermon this morning with something like this. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and among many witnesses. And, uh, and then saying, oh, just kidding, or something like that. But in doing that, it brings to mind something, doesn't it? I don't even have to tell you what it is. Most of you know. That that string of words placed together brings to life something in your mind. Or if I was to begin like this, once upon a time in a land far, far away, um, immediately most of your minds from a cultural perspective would have went to kings and kingdoms and princes and queens and dragons and toads and animals that spoke and galaxies far away. Why? Because your mind is conditioned with these phrases to think of particular things. I would almost have to convince you before I even stated those things of that, that this is not what I'm going to talk about for you to even think of anything completely different. Um, and I think that in some part, that's what we do with the Scripture as well. That we grow up with, or maybe even study a particular position or is so rooted and confirmed in that, that when you read a text, it's hard to read it any other way. Um, and for me, years ago, it wasn't a result of me taxing myself and searching the Scriptures and seeing whether they were so that I came to that conclusion. It was simply an inheritance of tradition, of interpretation that I had received and gladly received and joyfully received. I'm not blaming any of the men um, that taught me or pastored me. Um, it was me and it was me alone. And I guess I would just ask you this morning, is that you? Um, is that you? Because... Because we don't believe it simply because our pastor believes it. I'm not going to ask you this morning to believe it simply because I teach it. 
I'm not going to force feed it down your throat. I'm not going to demand that you believe anything here that I believe. I'm going to beg you to be a good Berean and to see whether these things are so. In a similar way, we raise up our children and I don't force feed them and I don't, I don't make them believe what I believe. I beg them to consider Christ and to make Him their own. It will benefit them nothing if they receive my faith and don't receive their own. Um, my faith is a gift to them and I will seek to persuade them on every avenue and I will point them in the right direction. But at the end of the day, they will make their own mistakes. They will commit their own sins and they must repent to their own God. And they must be convinced by Scripture and by Scripture alone. God must convict them and bring them to the end of themselves and to Him. For them to believe it, that's what I want. I don't want little automatons or little robots at home um, that, that obey Daddy simply because He's Daddy. Um, there, there's a period of time for that in their immaturity, but, but as they grow and they mature and they become adults, uh, adults, they must have their own faith. They must believe their own, in their own God and they must appropriate their own faith in what they believe um, simply because this is what God says. And that's what I want for you. I want for you to believe this not because I teach it, but I want you to believe it because the Word of God teaches it. And if you come to a different conclusion this morning or in the coming weeks, then amen to that as long as it's a biblical scriptural argument um, that you've wrestled with alone with the Lord, that you've been a good Berean, a faithful man or woman of God, and you've tested the Scriptures to see whether these things are so, and you've determined that they're not, I will support that. I will encourage that on these difficult things. And difficult it is. And monumental it is. Essential it is. Um, this text. This text is, is of no small importance. It's actually a text that atheists love. Bertrand Russell, an atheist of old, um, actually argues in his book against Christianity and why he's not a Christian. And one of the, one of the, the texts that he cites is this very text. This is a text in which um, he and most atheists alike um, argue against the veracity and the integrity of our Lord as well as um, the Scriptures. He believes that Jesus simply got it wrong. Uh, Bertrand Russell argues in his book, and he cites this text, that he wasn't convinced um, of the authority of Scripture, the veracity of it, because Jesus simply got it wrong. He says, I'm concerned with Christ as He appears in the Gospels, taking the Gospel narrative as it stands. And there one does find some things that do not seem to be very wise. One thing... He has certainly thought that His second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. He argues that, that Christ predicted His death and yet and He would come in glory, the second coming, and yet it did not happen. He cites this text, but also other ones like Matthew 10, 23, "...ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come." Or in Matthew 16, 28, "...there are some standing here which shall not taste death till the Son of Man comes in His..." kingdom. The issue for him was the time frame references that taken upon face value um, seemed to predict the time in which our Lord would come prior to um, that generation dissolving, that there would be some there that um, would see the Lord in His coming. And to, according to him, the veracity of Christ's Messiahship and divine inspiration of Scriptures rest on Christ's divine ability as well as His human integrity and righteousness to get this right. If he gets it wrong, at best he doesn't possess divine knowledge, he claims, and he misses on a calculated guess. Or at worst, he's a liar and a deceiver and no one 
should believe Him. The question that we need to answer is, did He get it right? And if He did get it right, because here's the thing, it's not about the atheists and the secularists. There's Christians out there today that are as liberal as I'll get out that will say Jesus got it wrong. Either that or they'll say Matthew got it wrong. They'll look at this term immediately and the argument goes that Matthew inserted immediately. It wasn't Jesus' own. And in protecting Jesus' integrity, they totally dissolve Matthew's integrity and bring the entirety of Scripture under attack. Um, Was this uh, Matthew's words? And more importantly, was it Jesus' words? I'm going to argue that that's the case. And there's different ways that that people argue it. People will have to argue with the time references, not only here, but other places. And in some ways, they, you, know, you have to somewhat spiritualize it. Um, and I don't say that in a negative way. I totally understand that position. And what I'm trying to get at is, is, that, um, is that regardless of this position that you take, um, there's difficulties. And we need to seek to reconcile those difficulties And the way that I'm going to reconcile the difficulty this morning of this particular portion is to argue that it is symbolic in nature. And when you come to Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 through 31, you enter into a new portion of this discourse in which our Lord uses apocalyptic, symbolic uh, language to refer to the catastrophic event that's going to happen in A.D. 70. Up to this point, we've not seen the destruction of the temple. I'm going to argue that the destruction of the temple and Old Covenant Judaism you find in this portion of Scripture. How do I come to that conclusion? Is this what Jesus meant? That's what we want to know. Okay? Now, many people will attack the position that I have. Not anybody here. Nobody's done that. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. But they'll attack the position that I have and they'll say that you're, you're removing the meaning of the text because you're spiritualizing it. Uh, maybe that's true. Maybe I am spiritualizing it. But the question would be, does that remove the meaning of the text? The, the, the great question that we need to answer this morning is not, um, not what does it mean literally, but what... Because that's usually the argument, you know. One great argument is that usually comes up is Revelation chapter 20 in the millennium. And I'm not going to argue one position or another. I'm just going to say that generally the attack upon um, someone who doesn't take it in a literal fashion is, is that it's, uh, it says millennium and it means millennium, you know, a thousand year period. Um, the issue that I take with that is, again, it could mean millennium in a thousand year period, but I think it could also mean something else. That it's a book, that, that Revelation chapter 20, um, also the same folks will generally argue that um, they don't take anything, or they don't take other things literally in the book of Revelation. For example, the same chapter refers to a dragon. It refers to a key, key to the bottomless pit, um, in which they'll say, no, that's symbolism. They don't really believe that there is an actual physical key to the bottomless pit that someone will unlock. Not only that, Revelation 20 is, is couched in an entire book that is, that is, um, that is just, just um, immersed in apocalyptic symbolic language that nobody takes in a 100% literal one-to-one parallel fashion. Um, they, they don't believe that it's an actual dragon with uh, seven heads or with ten horns. They don't believe that it's an animal covered with complete eyes. Many don't believe that it's actual locusts. Uh, they don't believe it's an actual uh, physical harlot. Um, that, 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 that we have to understand literature and the genre that it's given and that actually what we desire to understand is not what it means in a one-to-one parallel, but what does the author intend for it to mean? The question here to ask is that when Jesus gives this discourse, 
What does He intend to mean? Right? Because all throughout Scripture, what you find is that prophecy is not often identified until it takes place. For example, Genesis 3.15. What is that? That is the first Gospel we often refer to. Adam falls in the garden. What does the prophecy say? Um, the prophecy says that there will be a seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent, and that she will bruise, or that he will, the seed will bruise um, the heel. Will, the, the, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed. Let me ask you a question: Did that happen in a one-to-one literal parallel two thousand years ago? Do we find Jesus, the great Messiah, come and take the serpent under his foot and crush him in somewhat of a Roman type battle in a Colosseum? The answer is no. Does that mean though that it is not true? No. It means that as prophecy was fulfilled, Jesus Christ broke the back of Satan, crushed the head of the serpent in the cross, um, that, that the seed of Adam came in the form of Jesus Christ, and in His death, burial, and resurrection, He crushed the very works of Satan. That as time goes on, it's progressively revealed that in this prophecy, I mean, it's not 100% literal one-to-one parallel, but it was never intended to be so. But in a greater, fuller extent, we find Christ the Messiah come in a meaningful fashion in the way that it was prophesied um, to do exactly what was prophesied in, 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 in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. And so the question is not what, is, what will it look like in the future necessarily, um, but, but, but what does the author intend for us to gather from um, the, the prophecy at hand? And I'm going to argue that in this portion of Scripture that what Jesus is intending for those disciples to understand is that destruction to Old Covenant Judaism would come. And He uses, particularly in verses 29-31, through catastrophic, cataclysmic type of apocalyptic language that would have been very well known to the Jewish people in that day. The problem is is that we often read um, the New Testament from a 21st century American mindset and context, and we read into it, again, just like we would the marriage covenant that was read earlier once upon a time, we read into it what we know. And I'm asking you this morning not to believe inherently what I'm saying, but for us to step back for a moment and ask the question, um, to be faithful to Scripture, what does Christ intend in it, and how would they have received it, and how would a New Testament uh, first century Jew, how may they have interpreted it or received it? Would it have been different than us being detached completely from New Testament, Old Testament Judaism, would we have heard it in different ways? If I would have went over to somewhere in Africa that is detached from English-speaking um, languages and read those words once upon a time, would their mind went to the same place that mine did or yours did? The chances are no. We would have had to go into great detail and convince them this is what we're doing or this is what we're talking about. Or at least I wouldn't have had to argue against the context of it to teach them something else. I'm, I'm saying that, that with much of Scripture, I wonder if we, just like me many years ago, um, bring into it my own presuppositions and my own, um, for, uh, my own pre-taught um, things or ideals and concepts um, into it and read that upon the text. But when we come to the Scriptures, we must come seeking to know what the Lord intended. And there's a whole host of ways in which the Lord communicates to us using literary um, devices. He uses hyperbole. 
He uses symbolism. He uses allegory. He uses parabolic um, stories. He uses a whole host of things. And this, is, and this is true. It's simply something that we have to deal with. For example, our Lord uses hyperbole. Um, for example, He says, um, if, you're, if your eye offends thee, gouge it out. If your right arm offends thee, do what? Cut it off. And you know that, right? Because I look out here and I see you know, both arms on every single one of you and everybody has all your eyes. No one takes that in a complete literal one-to-one fashion. Why? Because that's not the way our Lord intended it. So I'm asking you this morning, what did our Lord intend and how should we uh, receive it? Thus the text. And I know that that was lengthy, but I thought that that was important. And I'm going to give you a surface level kind of interpretation of this, but at the same time, I want you to know that I have plenty of notes here that I would love to talk to you about afterwards if this is something that you want to continue um, to discuss. We read these words in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. What does this mean? If Jesus um, has a context in which He's trying to convey to the disciples that they'll understand where would He draw it from? He would draw it from the Old Testament, right? That if we're going to be faithful to the text and we want to discern what Jesus intended, then I want to commend to you that the first thing that you should always do, and it won't always conclude in this, but the first thing you should do, um, if you have a Bible and you have a reference Bible, um, one of the most faithful things to do um, is to look in the middle column or the side column and, um, and ask yourself a question, is there a cross-reference to this? Look in your columns. Is there? There may or there may not be. And if there is, for verse number 29, uh, mine says Daniel 7.1 and Ezekiel 32.7. Um, if you have an NASB, if you have some other study Bible, it just depends on what it is. You may have Isaiah 13. You may have Isaiah 34. Why? Because um, those who have fashioned your study Bibles have came to the conclusion that this is a direct quote or an, at least an allusion to Old Testament passages. That this is not something confined to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone. That this is something that the disciples, Jewish in nature, would have possibly memorized and been immersed in from a very young age. They would have known it. right? So the next step to understand the text um, is to look at the text that he's referring to. This is our method of interpretation. I'm not here to argue something novel, something new. I'm here simply to ask the question and to seek to interpret Scripture using Scripture. It's not a creative way. Um, this will give us insight in how the author intended, who is Jesus, intended for them to receive and how the recipients may have received it. When I go back, I ask, how was it used then? What was the context? Was the passage in the Old Testament different in context? And if it was, should it be interpreted in a different way? Is it the same context? If it is, does it make sense then that it should be received in a similar way? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 13. In Isaiah chapter number 13, in verse number 1, you read these words. The burden against Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. 
I have commanded my sanctified ones. I also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. What's happening? There's a message to a nation by the name of Babylon. Um, this is the burden. This is the weight. This is the gravity laid upon them. First, it may even be it may even be um, interpreted faithfully. Judgment. This is the judgment upon Babylon. Verse number um, seventeen. Read these words. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bowls will their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children in Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, uh, the, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their ship their sheepfolds. There, what are we reading? We're reading about a judgment that is coming upon the nation of Babylon who is not a world power at that time. But Isaiah prophesies of a time in which the Medes will come um, and they will overthrow the Babylonian Empire such that it will never be inhabited again. Historically, we know that that happened. Verse number 6, Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Again, this is the sandwich. This is in between. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will. Does that sound familiar? Pain as a woman in childbirth. Matthew 24 refers to what? Birth pains. Um, they will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord has come. Uh, comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. Sound familiar? And He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens... And the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. It will be as a, as a hunted gazelle, as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. That Isaiah gives us a prophecy against Babylon. And it's important to note that as well as when he prophesies, Babylon, again, was not a world power or a threat, but in the future that God would destroy them and He would use other nations to do it. Did God destroy them? Yes. How? Through the Medes. This is what the text says. And in the middle of the prophecy, He uses this apocalyptic type language, sun, moon, stars, heavens, um, to depict the overthrow of a ma and massive revolutionary reversal of political powers. I'm convinced that stars, moons, heavens does not inherently refer to physical stars, moons, and heavens and thus, because the world is still here. That would simply be part of my argument. This isn't the only place. Turn to Isaiah chapter 34. So it's, it's used in language against Babylon. Not only that, it's used in language against Edom. You remember the Edomites? It's also called the Idumeans. So what you read in verse number 1, Come near you nations and hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and His fury against their armies. Verse number 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. 
Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, and it is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of the rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice. And you see there that verse number 4, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as a fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. Now, do we know that there's symbolism there? The answer is yes, at least in part, right? Because does, does the Lord come down with a physical sword? Does a physical sword come out of His mouth like in Revelation chapter number uh, whatever it is? Uh, there will be a coming a day, a sword. No, it's, it's symbolic of the authority and the power that God has to bring judgment upon people. That as His, His Word going forth will be as a sword, two-edged, that comes out of the mouth and brings um, disaster with it and terrible judgment upon it. And that the heavens, it says there, to Edom will be rolled up like a scroll. The same thing is said of Egypt in Ezekiel, or similar, is said of in Egypt... I'm not going to go to this, so write it down if you want to look later. Um, so it's, it's used of Babylon, it's used of Edom, it's used in Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 and 8 of judgment against Egypt and Pharaoh. It's used in Daniel chapter number 8 and verse number 10 to speak about the empires there that will be brought low and their leaders, it says, uh, that the host will be brought down like the stars of heaven. Right? That, that it is not uncommon in Near Eastern language and not only in the Jewish religion, but also among the Egyptians and others to utilize um, astronomy-type language to refer to political powers and to refer to um, leaders of nations. Um, and there's quote after quote that we could look at. That it's, that, that it's used of Israel, it's used of Judah, it's used of Jerusalem, it's used of Egypt, it's used of uh, Edom and Babylon and the judgment throughout the Old Testament that will come upon these nations. That's the idea. Remember in Genesis, when Joseph has a dream, one of his dreams was of what? His family. And what did he see? He saw the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? And some bowed before the others, and they got upset, and they threw him in a pit to be killed, right? Um, that the nation of Israel often throughout the Old Testament is used, is, is referred to in this type of language. Now, when you go to this passage, and I went to some passages that would disagree with me because I want to know. And I went to some commentators that would um, disagree with me because I want to know. Is this wrong? And without, uh, and most commentators who disagree with me would argue that what happened in Isaiah 13 happened in time and reality. Yet there may be something in the future that happens as a pattern. And at the end of days, I don't deny that. Um, you may be saying all of that is still future. Okay, turn with me to Psalm chapter number 18. Psalm chapter number 18, you read of the words of David concerning God's deliverance of him uh, from the hand of Saul, the text says. And in verse number 7, you read these words. So this is David's words of being delivered by God from Saul. And you read this. And again, I want you to go back and read the context, okay? Don't just believe me. Be a good Berean. He says in verse 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken. Why? Because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. 
With darkness He came down with darkness under His feet. And He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness His secret place. His canopy around Him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before Him, His thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered the foe. Lightnings in abundance, and He vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. What you see is you see the divine act, sovereign act of God intervening in time and reality on behalf of His people and bringing judgment against those who stand against Him. The same uh, quote is almost quoted exactly in 2 Samuel chapter number uh, 22 where um, David recounts this very account and he uses almost the exact same words um, as he sings and praises the Lord. Verse, uh, chapter 22 and verse number 8 of 2 Samuel, "...then the earth shook and trembled," it says. "...the foundations of the heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring his fire. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down." That this is the coming of the Lord that is not a visible return of Jesus Christ, but is a very manifestation of the glory of God in His sovereignty over the nations. Thus He controls them." One commentator writes, the simplest reader of the psalm observes that the answer to the prayer of the one in distress, Jehovah reveals Himself in a marvelous power and glory. He disturbs for His sake all the elements of the earth and the heavens. He descends from the lofty sky as if bending down the visible clouds and making a pathway of massive darkness under His feet. He seems to ride upon a chariot, the text says, borne along by cherubim and moving swiftly as the winds. In the psalmist's thought, winds, hot fire, hell, smoke, clouds, water, lightnings, and earthquake are all conceived as immediately subsumed servant to Jehovah who interposes for the rescue of His devout servant. Um, You can go to the book of Judges and read of Deborah um, who conquered the king of Canaan and she celebrates in Judges chapter 5 by singing a psalm. And it says, she says this, when the leaders in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord, O, o kings. Give ear, O princes. I, even I, will do uh, to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, you, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. The, this Sinai, they're the Lord God of Israel. I think this sounds novel to us because we don't talk this way. I don't think that this would have sounded all that novel to the disciples because this is the way God talked to them under the Old Covenant. And in Scripture's prophets often express national catastrophes in terms of cosmic destruction. You say, well, does it mean something is coming in the future? Maybe. The, the days of the Lord in the Old Testament are, are more than just one day. It's not, the, not, not just the final end of time and creation and the continuum altogether. But it does, but, but there are scriptures that refer to that. And that these days of the Lord are reminiscent of that great day that should teach us that, that, that these things happened and that there is coming a day in which those things will happen not only to this nation, but to all nations. So there is a sense in which, yes, Isaiah 13 other places could have some future implications concerning the entirety of the world, but it, without a doubt, um, according to Old Testament, in, in history at large, world history at large, these things truly happened. And the heavens were rolled up like a scroll and the stars did fall and the sun did not give its light. Their influence went away. The light was gone. Think about Jerusalem. What happened? The light is out. The stars fall. The leaders of the nation as a political entity cease to be. 
And we, and we should, and in some sense we don't talk like this, but in some sense we do, don't we? Right? I mean, something may have happened this week. I can't imagine what's going on in the minds of, 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 of those we mentioned earlier, right? Their world is shattered. Their universe is halted. It's as if the world stopped. Like we talk about like this all the time. Um, and it's not a one, and, and nobody receives it like that. You know, uh, when, when he said my world, the, my earth, the earth was shattered this morning. Nobody goes and looks out the window to see if it's still rotating. We know that it is because it's hyperbole. It's symbolic. It's to represent a greater truth. Yes, something really happened. And I want to, I want to, I want to communicate the gravity of that thing. So I'm going to use cataclysmic type language because to the nation of Israel, that is exactly what would have happened. You know, they would have received it like this. It was a, a, the, the Jewish Mishnah reports of the, of the mourning that, that happened, the lament over the nation of Israel, the temple, the, the, the Jerusalem, everything, their entire world was just wrapped and circulated around this thing. And, and upon the destruction of Jerusalem, it was as if the universe had stopped. They're not able to carry out, and for the last 2,000 years, they have not been able to, even to this day. Um, uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, writer, rabbi in the Mishnah reports that not a day has gone by that it has not been a curse. And he references the temple being destroyed since the temple was destroyed. And I'm paraphrasing, and I can get you the quote later. He says, not a day has gone by that there is not, uh, we have not lived as a curse. Why? Because those things are gone. It is as if the world has stopped. Another writer writes, it requires but a slender um, acquaintance with the Old Testament writings to enable us to observe the peculiarity. It is not only figurative, but the figures are of the boldest kind, involving analogies so remote as in some instances to be scarcely discoverable. If revolutions and empires be the subject, the prophetic representation is filled with disturbance of the laws of the natural world, and the sun, moon, and stars are exhibited in commotion. If a deliverer is promised to the Jews, the prophet expresses the promise by the rising of a star and the like. That's exactly what you see of Christ as well, right? He is the bright and morning star. He is the sun. That Christ rises. The new covenant, I'm going to argue in just a few moments, the new covenant rises and the new day dawns and the sun ascends. And He is that great sun. He is that great light, John argues. And not only in the gospel, but also in the revelation. And as the new covenant arises and the day star shines, the old covenant is passing away. Hebrews chapter number 8 and 9 and 10. And that's the picture. One commentator writes, the picture of the collapsing universe symbolizes the one simple but sublime thought of supernatural inter interposition in the affairs of the world involving remarkable revolution and change. The element of time does not appear in the picture. Um, of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, where here it means uh, in Daniel's vision, it is an apocalyptic sign of the Messiah as the King of heaven and earth, executing divine judgment and entering with His people upon possession and dominion of the kingdoms of the world. But that's what I'm arguing is happening here. So well, it moves from narrative to symbolic. How do we know? Um, it's the exact same format that happens in Isaiah 13. He begins with reality and then he uses this type of language um, to refer to the destruction of those who are disobedient um, to Him. Back to Matthew chapter 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Another problem right there, right? <laughs> and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I've got to move quick on this um, because time fails us. 
My translation says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. I don't believe that that's the best translation. I'm not a Greek scholar. I know enough to get me in trouble. (laughs) Um, But when you study the original language, I believe that the King James has a, a more faithful rendering of the word order. There's just like in English, if you were to mix up the word order, you could confuse things. Um, in the original language, um, it gives a different word order. Let me read it to you. I think King, the King James represents it well. It says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Not that the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven, but that the sign is the Son of Man in heaven. That that's the way it should be translated. And again, I lean on of a lot of faithful men for that translation. But the sign is not the Son of Man um, appearing in heaven. That the Son of Man is the sign. And the sign is, is that He's in heaven. The sign is neither in the sky. It doesn't appear in the sky. But it is proof. The sign is the proof. Is proof that the Son of Man is in heaven. That's what I'm going to argue that the judgment on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is a sign that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father and He rules and reigns forevermore, not only over His people, but over all the nations. That when the destruction of the temple happened, um, Israel saw Christ in His judgment and they mourned. I think it's a, just a direct reference to Zechariah chapter number 12 or 14. Um, that, they, that Christ came in the destruction, again, just like earlier, He came down, Psalm 18, that He comes, and His coming is not always a visible return of Christ in the second coming, but He comes in many forms, and that we see Him in different ways, um, not even just with a physical eye, but, 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 it, but in different ways, and that one way that they see Him is Him coming in judgment. Again, I'm not denying a second coming, I'm just saying that this is not the second coming. And that what they would see in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, it would be proof that the Son of Man is in heaven ruling and reigning from um, His throne. Turn to Acts chapter number 2. In Acts chapter number 2, in verse number 32, you read these words. Peter's preaching at Pentecost that Jesus has raised up of which we are all witnesses. He's preaching to who? But mostly to, to Israel, Right? Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He says that there are things that are happening here that will what? Be a sign of what? Him being exalted to the right hand of God the Father, right? So what is happening here is direct evidence that God has been enthroned um, up on high. That He is alive and He's alive forevermore. That Jesus whom you crucified lives to this day. Let all of Israel know. And how do we know? We know because Peter's quite the Bible interpreter according to the Spirit of God. Go with me also just a few verses earlier to this. Verse 14, Then Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by Joel the prophet. Right? 
Again, we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture. What does Joel say? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. You go back to verse 32. That's what he's arguing was a sign that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? Well, what does he also say that will happen in the last days? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my, uh, my, my men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And it happened. And as a result of that, what do they know? Jesus is enthroned in heaven. He's at the right hand of God the Father. These things are happening here. You know He's there. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to argue that in that generation that the last days was possibly referring to the last days of the old covenant um, of old covenant Judaism and that the blood the fire and the smoke sounds very much like what we read about the last several weeks what did we see in Jerusalem we saw blood we saw fire we saw smoke such that one portion of the temple the blood had stagnated to the point that that it was uh, up to the thigh parts and up to the knee Fire. I mean, it looked like uh, as the temple burned, the entire city of Jerusalem, it was so large, it looked like the entire city of Jerusalem was on fire and smoke went up from there for weeks, if not, if not months. That this too is a sign, I'm arguing, that the Son of Man is prophesied by Joel the prophet. Right? And this is, this is Peter's interpretation of Joel. Right? That these things will happen. We know that initially the Holy Spirit did fall upon them and that that did happen. I'm arguing that these things did as well. And that's what he says in verse 19, and signs in the earth beneath. What are the signs? Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. It's interesting that that term is actually not used by Joel. That that is the only additional inclusion that Peter uses. That these things will follow. That this is what you're seeing now. This is what he says in the last days, and this is what is going to happen and be fulfilled. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26. And I know that this is somewhat laborious. But I also think it kind of needs to be. As I said earlier, we'd almost have to talk you out of something before we could talk you into it based upon what we already uh, know, right? So I'm arguing that... um, One writer writes this, an adequate study of the prophecy of Joel would soon teach that the figures used in the prophecy signs in heaven and earth, the darkening of the sun and the moon, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke have nothing to do with the end of the world, but with the end of the old covenant and its early earthly administration in the Jewish state. The same figures are frequently used in the Old Testament to denote the removal of overthrow of kingdoms, powers, and ordinances. Peter's quotation was a warning to the Jewish people of his own day that the time of the removal of their order had come. Their kingdom and state were about to go down in blood and their son was about to be set as took place in 70 A.D. when the nation and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. That's what I'm arguing. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 62. Our Lord is approaching His death as crucifixion here. He has a, a, an encounter with the Sanhedrin and they're asking Him questions. The chief priests, the elders, all the council are there. And in verse number 16, you read this, The high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? He's asking him pretty much, Are you the Messiah? Do you claim to be? I think Mark's account, actually, he says, I am. Here it says, Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Mark, he says, "I, I am, or so you say. Jesus said to him, 
It is as you said. This is His words. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further do we need to have of witnesses? Look how you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He's deserving of death. I believe that um, if this is a reference to the second coming of Christ, then there's a big problem. You're going to see, he says to Caiaphas, you're going to see the high priest, the glory of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Even though the kingdom was given to Christ upon the ascension of the Father, it remained for the manifestation of this to be seen in some way to all of Israel. Here was the sign that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Son um, who was seen by Daniel coming in the clouds of heaven. This is a direct reference to Daniel 13 and 7, 13, and 14 where it refers to the, uh, the Son of Man coming in the clouds up to the Ancient of Days. That's a, many refer to that as the second coming of Christ, but I believe it's a direct reference to the ascension, that, that the Son of Man will come up and then He'll receive a, a kingdom, a power, a dominion of which there will be no end, an everlasting dominion. I think that's what happened. I think that's what the Bible teaches, that at the ascension, Christ rose to the right hand of God the Father, seated on David's throne, Acts chapter number 2, and He received the kingdom the, of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and the kingdom of God. Um, and He's ruling and reigning over it um, even now. And... I believe that that's the proper interpretation. And you know what? And I, I looked up John MacArthur because he totally disagrees with me on this passage. And I appreciate him. And I've leaned on him. He's probably been the, the single most uh, sanctifying means that God has used in my life to make me more like himself. So um, in some sense, I, I, I kneel to him. Um, and still to this day, even though we would disagree. But I, I looked up his commentary on Matthew 26, verse 62, to see what he believed the coming was. I think he believes that it's the final end of the days, but, but the application is very similar. Let me read it to you. He says he claims to be Christ. He claims to be God without hesitation. And then to really drive home his point, he quotes Daniel 7, 13, and 14, one of the great and familiar messianic prophecies. Thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, and here he quotes this prophecy from Daniel 7, 13 of the Messiah. Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. What an amazing claim. Yes, he says. I am God and you soon shall see me exalted to the right hand of the power. Literally, the power in the text, that's a paraphrase for God. You will see me exalted to the right hand of God and someday coming in the clouds of heaven. He goes on to say, and he speaks here of the fact that he is going to be exalted for a coronation and he will return to earth as judge and king to establish his eternal kingdom. What a claim. I'm the one who spoke, uh, whom Daniel spoke, he says. When Daniel outlined how the Messiah would come and be exalted, how the Messiah would be lifted up to the right hand of God, how the Messiah would be come in the clouds of glory, he spoke of me. And the hereafter, notice, you shall see. You shall see it. In other words, Caiaphas, this isn't the last time you're going to see me. You're going to see me again. You're going to see me when I come in the clouds of glory as judge. And he goes on to argue that's judge of all the earth. You're going to see me at the great white throne. Uh, I would disagree with him on that. But I think the, the application is the same. That what's meant here is that Caiaphas will one day see him um, in a way that he's not seen him before, coming in the clouds. And I believe that that happened in AD 70 as judgment um, came upon Jerusalem. And we know that history teaches us that Caiaphas was alive um, during 70 AD and he was murdered in the temple by a Jewish faction known as the Zealots. That he saw the coming of the Lord. 
that in the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which predicted that the Son of Man would come with clouds of heaven into the Ancient of Days to receive His everlasting kingdom, His appearing in judgment was proof of that. That's the argument. That the sign that He was, that the, the destruction of Jerusalem would be the sign that He's in heaven. And it goes on to say that all, nation, all tribes would mourn. Or let's see what it says in the New King James. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Say so all the tribes of the earth didn't mourn. It depends on how you take that. The term there, earth, is actually used in Matthew predominantly to be translated land. All throughout the book of Matthew, the only way that Matthew ever uses the word tribes is to speak of who? The 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And the land, even to this day, the most popular newspaper in the, in the nation of Israel is literally, I don't know how you say it in Hebrew, but it's the land. Anytime the land would have been spoken of, um, it was referring to the nation of Israel. That what you see here is that when the judgment comes, Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's a sign that He's in heaven pouring out judgment upon them and all the tribes of the, of the land will mourn. That the nation of Israel will mourn and lament over what is happening all around them. And as I, I mentioned earlier, that's exactly what happened. And, and then you'll see a man, and the Son of Man coming uh, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So what do you do with that? Again, the Old Testament. Let's, prepare, let's, let's, let's compare Scripture with Scripture. So, um, Isaiah 19.1 says, See, the Lord rides on the swift cloud as His coming on Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before Him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. That God is often associated as coming in the clouds. Uh, Psalm 97, verse 2 and 3 says this, Clouds and darkness are round about Him. Righteousness, get it? Righteousness and judgment are, his hab- are the habitation of His throne. A fire goeth before Him and burneth up His enemies round about. The Old Testament uses the exact same language to speak of the righteousness and the judgment of those who disobey God, and particularly of the nations. That What I'm arguing here is that the destruction of Jerusalem, prophesied of old, the vengeance of our God, which we read this morning, even in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 61, I read it this morning. What did he say? He said, as Christ comes, you would, you would even see the vengeance of our, of our God. That the vengeance would come, and it would be a sign. The blood, the fire, and the smoke would be a sign to Israel that Christ had ascended to the right hand of God the Father. When it happened, their entire world would melt away. The entire uh, the, the tribes of the nation of Israel would mourn as He comes in judgment and, on, and with power and great glory. Um, power and great glory. And I don't have time to finish the text. But let me give you this. As just a, as just a four... A, curse, a precursor of next week. In verse number 35, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It also refers in, in verse number 29, you read these words, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Um, what verse 35 could mean, it could be speaking of just the veracity of Christ's words, enduring, that they're enduring, that they're true, that they'll come to pass. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter number 12, verse 26 and 27 that I mentioned weeks ago. When you look at the text... What you see is you see that the writer talks about earth and and heaven being shaken. And he contrasts the earth being shaken at the giving of the law and the earth being shaken at the giving, I'm going to argue, the new covenant. And that the things that were shaken will dissolve. But the things that aren't shaken, meaning the heavens and the earth now, the new covenant, I think is what he's arguing. He's arguing between Sinai and Mount Zion, old covenant and new covenant. Many refer to that, uh, reference that as the second coming of Christ, but I believe he's talking about old covenant and new covenant, and that the old covenant would pass away, that, that literally at Sinai, the, the, the earth was shaken, the voice came down from God. 
And, um, and in the New Covenant, uh, maybe I should just turn there. Um, but the contrast is not Sinai Second Coming, but Sinai Zion, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And the language that he's used is the removal of the things which can be shaken, namely heaven and earth, so that the contrast goes with what's being promised and the time of fulfillment. The shaking is the establishment of the New Covenant and the removal of the things that are shaken is a reference to the Old Covenant, in particular the things that are made, or would, would particularly be known by them as the, the things that are made or the temple. That the things that are made are the things that are removed, he argues. The same word removed is the same word in 7.12 and 7.19 of Hebrews in reference to the removal of the law and the priesthood. So what happened was that the shakings of the heavens and the earth are a reference to the removal of the Old Covenant which completely fulfilled at the destruction of the temple. Jesus could be very, um, very Jesus could very well be um, referencing this exact same thing that the old covenant is passing away, um, but the new covenant will not. Um, you could even go to um, a quotation out of Isaiah, I think it's fifty-one verse sixteen, um, that argues that the same type of language is used not only um, that way, but it's also used of establishing nations. And he says, I planted Mount Zion. I planted the people of God um, uh, in the heavens. And I don't have that exactly before me, but I can give it to you um, um, next week. And this isn't a novel interpretation. Um, John Gill, which is the, the forerunner of Spurgeon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, um, says this. Hebrews 12.26 is speaking of the removal of the Old Covenant, the reception of the New the writer of the book of Hebrews indicated that the fulfillment of that prophecy was in process at time of the Hebrews of being written shortly before Jerusalem was destroyed. God shook things up, heaven and earth, to bring about the elimination of an old system to institute a new, a new that was better. Things that could be shaken were removed and things that could be shaken were remained. A kingdom which could not be moved was received, Hebrews says. The culmination of all this shaking place at the end of those days of tribulation immediately after it was then that God brought about this new world order, essentially the new covenant. That as Jesus destroys old covenant Israel, formally brings in new covenant order that is finally and fully established forever that cannot be shaken. That's the argument. That the powers of heaven will be shaken. As I said, Isaiah 56.16 says this, and I have put my words in my mouth and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, thou art my people. That the establishment of His people, he refers to it as a, a world being established. Heavens and earth. Uh, which may be a precursor as well to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so what does it all mean? I know it's a lot. But in one sense, there's a singular idea that... Um, this is vindication that Christ is God, right? The Son of Man coming, the, the, the proof of the Son of Man and the sign of heaven is, is vindication of God. It's vindication of the saints. It's vindication of, of Christ and, and, the, and the death um, that, he, that He suffered on Mount Calvary. What I'm saying is this, that similar, you remember whenever Christ died, what happened? The earth shook and the veil was rent. What did that signify? Um, it signified the disposal, the dissolving of an old covenant in which man was separated from God. Now no longer will man have to enter into a high priest once a year. Now Jesus Christ, the mediator, is that great high priest, Hebrews. He is better than Aaron. He is better than the high priest. He is a better, more sufficient sacrifice. He is able to save to the uttermost. There is now no more blood or the blood of bulls and goats that are necessary. Um, but, but, but Christ alone is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the high priest. 
Christ. He is the new covenant. Um, and in a similar way, at the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, God stands up in symbolism. In some sense, there's a theological statement being there, made there. The old covenant is done. It is null and void. It is no more. The earth was shaken. It's done away with. It was temporary. It was probational. It was preparatory. It was provisional until Christ come. And now that He's here, it's done. It's done. It's done. And He will send His angels with a great trumpet, uh, the sound of a great trumpet, and they'll gather together His elect from the four winds from one, of the heaven, one end of heaven to the other. And I don't have time to go into all the details of that, but I think that's simply the Gospel going forth to the nations. That angels doesn't always refer to, to, to angelic beings or beings of another, um, of another spiritual realm. That sometimes the, the Bible, uh, especially the New Testament, uses it oftentimes of messengers. You see it in Revelation chapter number 1. You see it even in Matthew as well as Luke where he speaks of the, 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 the messengers, the, these, these angels, these, and these messengers that are, that are, that are um, uh, ordained by God to carry a message to a people. It can be angels, but it doesn't have to be. That, that what I think this is, is in the establishing of the new covenant in formality, what you see is the sending forth of His, of His ministers with the great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together His elect. He will, to, from the four winds that, that, that Matthew 28 will be accomplished. That, that all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore to the, and disciple the nations. And that's exactly what you saw after AD 70. That's exactly what you're seeing today. That God's ministers... Beautiful are those who preach the gospel. How will they preach unless they're sent? And how will they be sent unless there is a, a, a word? So, so, so what you see here is in the establishing and the formalization of the new covenant that, that, that the gospel is no longer to Jew, but also to Gentile. And it will be established throughout all the earth as His faithful ministers carry it from one end of heaven to the other. And there's Old Testament references that, that, that refer to that as well. As not just the heavens, but the ends of the earth. That that's our lot in life. That there is, in some sense, a, a carrying on, a, an implication of this that carries on even to now. Right? That the old covenant is gone and the new covenant is established. That the world was shaken and, there, and, the, and Judaism was destroyed. The old covenant is new and void and the new covenant is established with power and great glory. Therefore, you go. Go into all the nations and preach the Gospel. And that's our call today. Right? We are to see the destruction of Jerusalem. And it should remind us of that great day that is to come to all nations, that God is sovereign over all the nations. And at the same time, we should see it as a gracious provision of a new covenant promised of old that He formally established in Christ. And not only did He formally establish it in Christ, but He did away with anything that will remind you of the old. That's what Hebrews is all about. It's, it's struggling with the old. You know what God says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse, uh, I think it's 27 or so, the last end of that chapter, He says it's passing away. And Hebrews 12 says it will pass away. And guess what? It did pass away. And He, finally, and he fully established the new covenant here and now for, forever. As it is the everlasting covenant. And that you too can know the grace of God in the new covenant. If you'll by faith repent, Come to Christ. Believe in the death, burial, resurrection and be saved unto the uttermost. Cling no longer to the, to the forms and the shadows of the old covenant, but cling to the substance which is Christ. That's the idea. And that's been going on for 2,000 years and that will continue to go on until the second coming of Christ. I think that's what this text is referring to. In no way will I be dogmatic. 
about it to where I say, you must believe this. But at the end of the day, you have the, you know, you have the luxury of, of, uh, of, uh, of not tackling that someday I've got to preach it, right? I've got, to get, I've got to do something with the text. So here we are. And I believe this is a faithful rendering. In my comments earlier, not to pick a poke at anyone about the way that we handle the text. I have been, God has been gracious to me and given me a people who, who have been so gracious to me. No one has came up and uh, divided the church over. There's not been any schisms. You know, all I have seen um, as I preach this text, and it was one of my worries that it would just be an upheaval within the church or cause division. Um, God has been gracious to me and given me a people um, who love the Word and who love me um, and have not caused issues. So I thank you for that. I praise God for that. Um, but I commend that to you today. I commend to you Christ in all of His glory manifested throughout the ages and continues to manifest Himself to this day. And if you are apart from Christ today, I beg you to come unto Him, all you that labor um, and are heavy laden, um, come unto Him and He will give you rest. That's His promise to you. And that you too um, can know Christ as a result of this. And one of the amazing things is, is that the destruction of Jerusalem and the inclusion of the Gentiles, God came to us, didn't He? We're not Jewish. And He continues to go to the Jewish people today. And He continues to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Thus we revel in His glory. And let's revel in His glory now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the privilege it is just to take a few moments and talk about deep things. Things that are seemingly too great for us. Seemingly things that are, Father, beyond us. But there is a sense in which it's not. Because we have Christ and we have a spirit, we can know. We can truly know God in some form, in some fashion. It's not just superficial, Father, but it's meaningful. And Father, you gave us your word, and you established it forever. And what a precious gift we have in it in places like Matthew and Mark and Luke. This great gospel. Father, let us not be lost in the minutia. Let us not be lost in the details. Let us not be academic in nature and theologians of rapport or to be acknowledged. Let us pursue the text simply because there we find Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that today that we found Him. I pray today, Father, that we honored Him. Father, I pray today that we were faithful to the text. I pray, Lord, that um, You'll use it for Your glory. I pray, Father, that You'll continue to give grace and humility and, and power and authority, Father, to the church at large, but also the church here at Christ Bible Church. Father, I pray that You would give unity, that You'd help us to unify, not necessarily in this topic, but in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that it must and needs to go to the nations, that Jesus Christ died for the nations, and that the sound of the trumpet should go forth that the sound and proclamation of the glories of Christ should um, pierce even the very darkest recesses of this earth, that Christ should be worshipped in every corner of the earth. Let that, Father, be that which unifies us. Let that be our song. Let that be our battle cry as we go forth and take this Gospel into the nations. That this is the heritage in which we stand with, with the church. And this is the heritage which You laid before us in Christ. So Father, um, with all authority in heaven and on earth, let us go therefore. Christ commissioned it. Christ accomplished it, Father. So let Christ apply it even to this body. 
and may next year and then the, the decades to come and in the generations beyond, Father, if, if America remains established in Your providence, uh, may this church be found faithful in the proclamation of the Gospel even to the nations. May we plant churches and may we go forth and may we send missionaries and may we reach the Tri-Cities with the a, with a Gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, this is the new covenant of Your blood. And you are worthy to receive the reward of your sufferings. Let us go, therefore, in Christ's name. Amen.